I absolutely knew I would because she was like, yeah, this made me feel terrible for a week. And I was like, well, obviously I have to read that. (laughs) Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 277. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Today's guest, Jake Sloopman, is an arborist living in Brooklyn, New York, where a regular commute on the subway means daily reading time. But when Jake's routine totally changed, he realized he needed a new way to keep the pages turning. Today, Jake and I discuss his big reading goal, the pressure to read serious literature, and how to alternate the heavy and the light for a balanced reading life. I've got a mix of weighty literature and frothy palate cleanser books to recommend for Jake today, so let's get to it. Jake, welcome to the show. Hey, it's so good to be here. Now, you are not our first New York City or even Brooklyn guest by a long shot, um, but you are our very first arborist. I'm not sure if that's going to connect to your reading life, but I'm definitely interested in hearing what an arborist does in Brooklyn these days. Oh, yeah. I mean, I tell people I'm an arborist in Brooklyn and I've had people be like, wait, but there's like, they're not trees in Brooklyn. (laughs) Oh, that must hurt. I kind of get it. I mean, people don't really think when they think about an arborist, they think about like forests and stuff. But yeah, it's like Brooklyn is an ecosystem and there are trees, there are parks and stuff. Okay, so I have a sad story for you. Okay. I have wanted all my life, probably because I read about it in a book, to go check out Prospect Park properly. And I've been there twice in the pouring rain because I was determined to try. And I just, it hasn't happened for me yet, Jake. Well, it's a beautiful park. And yeah, it's been great during this pandemic. Yeah, I run in it a lot. What do you do for the trees? I am a utility arborist. So basically, I swear it's not that interesting, but I... um... (laughs) It looks good on paper. Yeah, I know. People are like, wow, I've I've never met an arborist before. And I basically work with construction crews when they're working near New York City street trees that are under the jurisdiction of the New York City Parks Department. And I just... I oversee them. I document all of their work that happens around it. And I make sure the construction crews don't mess up the trees. And, you know, so we still have, you know, beautiful tree-lined streets in Brooklyn and Queens. Okay. So actually, when I get letters from my local utility that say, we're trimming trees in your neighborhood, and don't worry, we won't ruin them because we are working with a trained arborist. That's you. Yeah, that would be me. Okay. How did you get into that? I went to undergrad for biology, and I spent a couple years after I graduated working in a lab. I turned out to not be that interested in that, and I quit, which was kind of maybe ill-informed. And I moved back home, and I was just figuring out what I wanted to do. And I was looking for jobs related to my major, and I saw a position for an arborist. And yeah, that's how I got into it. This was not my first job as an arborist. I actually started out surveying for the Asian longhorn beetle in Brooklyn surveying for? What does that mean? So the Asian longhorn beetle is an invasive species that uh, kills certain species of trees. So my job wasn't to actually look for the beetle. It was to look for signs of damage in trees in Brooklyn, where it used to be a problem and now it's pretty much eradicated. So that was a few years ago. I didn't know that that was a thing. A lot of people didn't know. It was a very strange job. It's probably the strangest thing I'll ever have to do for work because a big portion (laughs) of it was going door to door and asking people if we could like look at the plants in their backyard and people would look at us like we were absolutely insane. Yeah, I'm glad I don't have to go door to door anymore. I'm glad I just work with construction crews. 
Do we see the characteristics that drew you to your current job evident in your reading life? I guess so. I, a lot of my job as it is now is pretty solitary. And yeah, I would say there's a parallel to that because, you know, reading is, you know, a solitary activity. You do it like when there's quiet and... I mean, when there's downtime at my job and I don't have any like paperwork to do, which happens a lot when there's not a crew actively near a tree, I know I'll pull out a book. Okay. I won't assume that you want a bunch of biology books, though. Maybe not necessarily that. (laughs) I won't say, I mean, I won't say no if it sounds, you know, interesting, but yeah, not necessarily related to biology or trees. Well, we'll see what comes up today. Jake, tell me a little bit about what your reading life is looking like these days. Recently, uh, with my boyfriend, decided that at the start of the new year, we were going to do a 52 book in a year challenge. We kind of did that because we both love to read. And we also both found ourselves reading and being engrossed in books. But then after we finished that, there would be long gaps and it would take a while to like start up a new book again. And we just figured that if there's some sort of goal, we'll always try and finish a book in a week. We'll always try and have a book that we're currently reading and kind of eliminate the gaps. I've definitely read more books at the start of this year than I have in any year previously. And yeah, it's been great. What made you think, okay, in 2021, I want to read more? How big a change is this for you? It's not a huge change. I've always read, but I just found that during the pandemic, I was reading less, which was actually kind of shocking to me because I assumed like, oh, I'm I'm home all day. This will be the perfect thing to do. But it was just hard to focus. And I realized like a lot of the reading I do is like on the subway and I'm not, I haven't been in the subway since March and it, it felt bad to not be reading as much as I was. And I just figured that having a goal would be the perfect way to change that. Although I'm trying to avoid cheating, not like cheating, gravitating towards sh- shorter books. I'm so intrigued by your use of the word cheating here. Well, yeah, obviously not cheating cheating but i just feel like like if i'm a few weeks behind my goal i'll like go towards the ya book that i love that i know i could read in like three hours or not pick up that really long 800 page book that i've been wanting to read because oh that'll just put me back even further so i think the goal is sort of a good suggestion i'll try and finish a book within a week but also obviously i'll just try and be kind to myself and just read what i want to read and not be patting myself out with easy stuff that I maybe won't necessarily like enrich my reading life. And I know a lot of readers really resonate with that, with the inclination to go short when you want to go big in your reading numbers. I'm wondering, is there a specific 800 page book you have in mind? Or is that is that just something that you know is a potential problem? I can't think of anything right now that's that long, but there surely will be throughout the year. Oh, I hope so. I hope you'll hear about some good long ones. What do they call it? Is that the Hawthorne effect that says that the very act of measuring something changes whatever it is that you're measuring? And in many ways, this is a good thing. Like we know that when readers begin to track their reading or when they set like a challenge for themselves like this, that they tend to read more. But it also is so easy to have behaviors that you don't want to be influenced in that way influenced in exactly that way. It's not just you. Jake, you mentioned reading light, fun, fast books, and also some heavier ones. So it sounds like you read broadly. Tell me a little bit more about the variety of what you're reading now and how that's working for you. Uh, I really enjoy like sinking my teeth into, you know, something like kind of dark and maybe what's considered, I don't know, quote unquote, like more literary. But I realized when I was reading last year, a particularly like gruesome book that I did really enjoy that I was like, I definitely can't repeat that again. And I do really love 
some sort of like light, frothy, fun books that just feel like a vacation for my brain. (laughs) (laughs) I love that description. Whenever I read something pretty heavy, I try and balance it with sort of a fun book afterward. But, you know, obviously I don't always have something like that on deck. So it's what I strive for, but it's obviously not something I could do every single time. Which of the two is easier to find, the heavy or the light? Probably heavy. A lot of the books that people recommend, or at least to me, are what people would classify as, I guess, literary fiction. Is this like silly to say? Because I guess sometimes people are like ashamed, I guess, of what would be considered more like of a frivolous read. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I get a lot of recommendations for, you know, heavier books. I mean, I remember, I think our third ever, what should I read next podcast guest, uh, JC saying, I want to read what the smart people are reading. And I want to look like a smart person when I tell you what I'm reading. But it wasn't good for her reading life. But yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. This is such a vain thing to say. And I know people also do this, but like if I'm on the subway or reading something in public, I'm probably not going to be reading a romantic comedy or something because I want people on the subway to think I'm smart. It's so stupid. Like why do these people are complete strangers? I know exactly what you mean when you're saying that. Jake, maybe we need to send you an e-reader. I do have an (laughs) (laughs) e-reader. So if I see you on the subway, I'll know that you're reading a rom-com. Yeah, And not Jonathan Franzen. Yes. (laughs) Jake, give me a feel for what counts as, I think you used the word gruesome for you as a reading experience. What was that heavy book that you were glad you read, but it was just, it sounded like it was uh, emotionally difficult. It was Ohio by Stephen Markey. I I loved it. It was just really dark though. It had like violence and sexual violence in it. Uh, It was just a, a really satisfying book a lot after I needed something light. So it sounds like it would feel good to have those books on deck. So if you do read something that's good, but just feels brutal, you know exactly what to pick up next. Yes, that's great. It's like a your frothy and fun palate cleanser. Absolutely. I always love a palate cleanser after okay. I read something heavy. Well, I can't wait to hear more about the specifics of what you're reading. Are you ready to get into your books? Yeah. Okay, Jake, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately. And we will talk about what you may enjoy reading next. How did you choose these? I tried to pick a mix of heavier books and, you know, fun, frothy books like what we're talking about. So I want to represent my reading life properly. All right, what's book one? Book one is Severance by Ling Ma. The pandemic book isn't the fun book. No, no. All right. I'm, I'm, catch- I'm catching on here. Okay. Tell me about Severance. <laughs> so I read this during the pandemic. I, it was like strongly recommended by my boyfriend. Actually, my mom had also read it before the pandemic. And she told me, don't read this. It made me feel miserable for a full week afterward. And she didn't even read it during the pandemic. I did read it. I read it on the beach, actually. So like, haha, fun beach read. And... <laughs> Maybe that's the balance you needed. Yeah, I read it in a single day, actually. It was it was completely engrossing. Really scary, actually, because it felt exactly like the days before the pandemic began in New York City, it felt exactly like it in the book, which is terrifying. But Wait, what do you mean? What was it like? I don't know. Everything felt off. Like riding the subway felt dangerous and... The, aura surrounding everything was just like terrifying because like we knew it was coming and we didn't know how bad it was gonna get yeah yeah I just remember like getting home after being out and just like showering and like disinfecting everything 
it felt like that, like things were starting to close down one by one. I don't know. It was. No, I'm so curious because I was there for an event at the Strand and some other publicity stuff for my last book. I think I left on March 7th. And I just remember being in the hotel room reading, being like, oh, this is terrifying. And then walking out in the world and it feeling mostly okay, except there were some people that were masks and there was hand sanitizer everywhere. And I remember doing my first elbow bumps at Union Square Park. Oh, yeah. The elbow bumps were definitely, yeah, in the beginning of March. But then just a couple days later, my friend had an event at a bookstore in Brooklyn. I mean, this was two days after I left and she said it was just a ghost town and people were staying home and the warnings were spreading. And it was just, it was a whole different world. It happened so quickly, but everything felt off right beforehand i just remember walking around walking with my boyfriend before we passed a movie theater and it was like movie theaters are going to be shut down next week and i was like you're crazy yeah he was exactly right i was going to go see a broadway show on the night i think broadway closed down and uh, this is not related to the book at all i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) but i think what we're doing is setting the mood yeah that was prevailing when you picked up this book on the beach thank goodness and not with your street view of brooklyn yeah from your window This book really just like captured what it feels like to have like a pandemic, like right before it's about to get serious. It totally captured me. You said you read it in one day. What was it that drew you in? I was sort of like gawking at what could have been. The coronavirus obviously wouldn't turn people into like capitalism zombies. But (laughs) I just remember really being like captured by like the voice of the protagonist. I don't know. It felt so cathartic to have like a protagonist who was so like untethered by everything around her. I do like post-apocalyptic. I love Orcs and Crake or Station Eleven. This really drew me in. Cathartic is a good word. Because I mean, who would have thought that this would be the right book at the right time? Yes, it was cathartic to experience someone experiencing the beginning of something that I experienced, obviously. And like, obviously the whole world experienced. I'm afraid your mom might be listening, but... Oh, she definitely is. I'm glad you picked it up. I absolutely knew I would because she was like, yeah, this made me feel terrible for a week. And I was like, well, obviously I have to read that because if anything, because <laughs> if anything makes you feel that strongly for a week afterward, I need to, I need to feel that. I also love that you're talking books with your mom. She's one of the main people I uh, talk about books with. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear it. Jake, tell me about book two. So this is sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum. I picked Sex and Vanity by Kevin Kwan. This is like if a champagne cocktail could exist in book form. (laughs) This is actually the book I read after I read Ohio. And it was the perfect thing for me because I've read also read uh, the Crazy Rich Asians trilogy. And he has Uh just like such a strong voice, I feel like. There obviously are stakes in it, but I feel like the worst thing that could ever happen to any of the characters is like a rich character might become slightly less rich. Everyone is constantly being amazed by like an amazing meal that's happening in front of them, or they're doing some sort of once in a lifetime shopping spree. The perfect thing to like reset after something heavy, I feel like. I mean, they could be complaining about a social snub. That is also on the table. Absolutely. But that's what I mean. Exactly. It's like, (laughs) I know, I know. It's like the problems that the characters experience are so minuscule. It's just amazing. And definitely fun and frothy. This one is like glitzy and glamorous and it felt really completely over the top in a way that was really fun for you. Very, very fun. And I know it's a a retelling of A Room from a View, which I embarrassingly have not read or seen the adaptation, but uh, this was great. There's no need for embarrassment here, but I will say That Merchant Ivory movie just keeps getting older and older, but it's a classic for a reason. It's in the minority of those movies that are better than the books they're based on, in the opinion of many. 
Oh, okay. I still might read the book, but I definitely want to watch the movie. It's really fun and a little strange. Like I watched it for the first time when I was young and have seen it periodically over the years. And readers everywhere should know Europeans have a different approach to nudity, as my German teacher <laughs> said many years ago than okay. Americans do. And there is a scene where there are like naked men running around the lake. And my kids just thought that was absolutely hysterical. Probably not the point of this whole conversation, but I do feel like if you're going to pick up that movie based on our discussion here, listeners, you should probably know that's coming. But Helena Bonham Carter is a baby in that movie. She's so young. Oh, she's so young. And it's, it's like a time capsule. Yeah, it sounds amazing. I was a little, um, not nervous to pick it up, but I was like, should I, am I doing myself a disservice by starting with the retelling or the adaptation? Mm -hmm. That's kind of like, I, I don't always go to books in translation for the same reason. I'm always afraid I'm like going to be missing something. Like I'm not going to get the original author's like yeah. true intent. When I picked it up, I, I didn't realize it was a room with a view retelling. And I was like, wait a second, her name is Lucy Church. Huh, that sounds familiar. And I slowly realized, no, this is totally the same story. And I thought that was really fun because I did love the movie so much and made myself read the book one time. Okay, Jake, what did you choose for book three? Book three was The Heart's Invisible Furies by John Boyne. And tell me about what made this work for you. I read this a couple years ago. It was going good. And I remember I reached a point about halfway through and I was like, wow, I'm definitely finishing this tonight. And it's a long book. It starts in Ireland with like a woman pregnant out of wedlock. It follows the baby throughout his entire life. Beautiful and like sad and kind of funny at sometimes. He's gay in Ireland in the 50s. And that's obviously not the most accepting place to be gay at that time. And I just, I don't like seek out books with queer characters, but if mm -hmm. I find them and like, it's a good book, it's always a plus for me. Like a lot of terrible things happened to people who couldn't live their authentic lives in Ireland. And I just thought it was so beautiful. And I don't know what the literary term for this would be, but throughout his life, a lot of impossible coincidences happened. Like he keeps on running into certain people over and over again. And Honestly, this is kind of silly, but a lot of times when I like love or hate a book, I go on Goodreads and see what other people thought of it and uh -huh. kind of be like, oh, no, I have the right opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw people like complaining about that, like, oh, it's so improbable that this would happen. And I was like, yeah, well, someone wrote it to be that way. I just thought it was so beautiful the way things like turned out and just remember crying like a baby at the end of it. Oh, I'm so glad it worked for you and that it made such an impact on you. Jake, you know what comes next. Tell me about a book that wasn't right for you. This one's hard because I really, really wanted to like it. And I heard so many good things about it. But it's, um, uh, and I definitely didn't hate it. But it's yeah. uh, The City We Became by N.K. Jeminson. Tell me more. Well, first of all, the concept is one of the best concepts for a book I've ever heard, where New York City is alive and like other cities are alive. And each of the five boroughs has like a human avatar that is the guardian of that city. I mean, that sounds amazing to me. And it just, I don't know. I just felt like all of the characters were kind of two-dimensional, kind of fell flat for me. And I realized that the concept is amazing, but you're really pigeonholing yourself into like three or four different character traits for each borough or something. It's kind of impossible to fit everything that like makes a borough unique into like one character. So it was just kind of disappointing to me. And also, I think the pacing was a little weird. Like it had to introduce a lot of characters. There's something I'm curious about. 
as far as this book goes, which I really enjoyed, which again, is not the right opinion. But oh, yeah, there's a there's a book for every reader. Not every book is for every reader. But I did really enjoy this in part because it was such a surprise for me. Like I think N.K. Jemison is a genius. She actually has a MacArthur grant now. So actual genius. Yeah. But, I, who am I to criticize? <laughs> no, no, no. But your a book can be wonderful and still not be right for you. I definitely see the bones of a book I would love in it. I definitely want to read more by her because I think she's a great writer. I didn't really connect with the story. This is the first in a planned trilogy. And I'm really wondering how much of the first book was set up. I don't understand what's meant to happen in books two and three of the trilogy. So I don't know enough about that. But I do know that in many trilogies, I'm thinking of uh, the new Naomi Novik series specifically, because it's the most recent one I read like this. Book one is a whole lot of world building and construction for the story that's going to come later. I've also heard for listeners who didn't find this one immediately hospitable, but suspect maybe it could be it could be right for you. I've heard this is amazing on audio, but I haven't listened to it myself. Maybe I will check it out. And I definitely want to read the sequel. I just might uh, get it from the library this time. All right, Jake, that's interesting to hear. What have you been reading lately? So I have been reading The Nicks on Audio by Nathan Hill. And this one is kind of cheating because this almost was one of the books I love. This is actually a reread for me, uh, listening to it on audio. I read it a few years ago, and it captured me from the prologue. I just remember reading the prologue and being like, yeah, this is going to be a book I love. Ooh, a lot to work with. And I'm especially thinking about the balance of the heavier, more literary books with fun, lighter ones, as you put it. Jake, what are you looking for in your reading life right now? What do you want to be different? Basically... What I said before, I was like, I always want to have a book in my hand. I always like want to know what I'm reading next. Usually if I finish a book, I won't start a new book that day. But mm-hmm. I'm sure this is a common problem for everyone. I guess it's the premise of the show. I always want to have to know what I'm reading next, I guess. All right. Let's see what we can do here. So the books you loved were Severance by Ling Ma, Sex and Vanity by Kevin Kwan, and The Heart's Invisible Furies by John Boyne. Not For You was The City We Became by N.K. Jemisin. And recently you've been reading The Nicks by Nathan Hill. And you're looking for a mix of fun and frothy, vacation for your brain books. I love that description. And the, the heavier. Jake, you said that finding those lighter books was perhaps ironically harder for you to find. So... Of the three books we're going to talk about today, I'm thinking that we're going to go two light and one heavy, if you're good with that. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Something else I'm keeping in mind is that you mentioned in your submission that you also really like fantasy and sci-fi, which I imagine was one of the reasons you wanted to pick up that N.K. Jemisin title. Yes, yeah. Even if that one didn't work the way for you that you were hoping it would. I'm the one who feels like I'm cheating because I know that you've read and enjoyed this author in the past, but... There's a book coming out I just have to put on your radar. It's the new one by Casey McQuiston. It's coming out on June 1st, and it's called One Last Stop. This book has some elements that you've really enjoyed in the past. You specifically use the word rom-com, like that's a genre you pick up. That's what this one is. And of course, many people know her from her seriously best-selling, sold a bazillion copies book, Red, White, and Royal Blue, which was set among the political elite. And this one is completely different. It's set like in the totally normal, or at least used to be and will be again, world of the subway, actually the Brooklyn subway, the Q line, which might just have a fun, like special connection for you being in Brooklyn. Yeah, I have not heard of this book, but I did love Red, White and Royal Blue. 
It's about a 23-year-old girl. I think she's from New Orleans. She's from the South. And she moved to New York City eventually after not quite working it out at a couple schools she tried to go to Brooklyn College. She is young, broke. Her mother is obsessed with discovering like the secret hidden history of something that happened to a family member a long time ago. Um, She's lonely. She doesn't have any friends because of her weird childhood. So she lands in New York and she needs to build a life for herself. So she meets these roommates just from the internet that seem like they might be kind of nice. And she gets this waitressing job at the pancake place, which is kind of bad because she always smells like pancakes, but they're really great people. And then she has a little bit of money, so that's good. But her first day of school, she's riding the queue line when she sees this girl about her age, probably really distinctive look, red cons, black leather jacket. They have a meet cute that involves a spilled cup of coffee that doesn't get her first day of school after a great start and a borrowed red scarf. She thinks, oh, what an amazing dazzling encounter. I'm never going to see her again. It's the subway. But then she does. It turns out she always sees this girl on the subway. This girl's name is Jane. And August starts to realize, hey, it's kind of weird that you're always on the subway. And the reason is, well, Jane is stuck on the subway. She's stuck on the queue line. And we find out why in the book. But Casey McQuiston said the impetus for this book was she wanted to tell a love story that was just straight up impossible, like it wouldn't work between the two characters. So she thought, okay, why would a love story be impossible? And it made her think of the old Meg Ryan, Hugh Jackman rom-com, Kate and Leopold, where Meg Ryan's like a contemporary woman and Hugh Jackman is, I don't know, an earl, baronet, something from a couple centuries ago. Like that isn't actually going to work in the real world. And that was her inspiration for One Last Stop. So poor August, 23, putting her life together, in love for the first time with a girl who basically lives on the Q train. That's the setup. It's really fun. I think this could be a vacation for your brain. And I think this could be just the right book to intersperse after you're done reading the severance equivalents that I'm sure are waiting for you in your literary future. How does that sound? That sounds amazing. Absolutely. I'm going to read that. I'm absolutely really excited to hear what you think. Okay. I'll be honest, I'm not sure how much to lean into the length thing. Like part of me wants to give you a 600 page book and part of me wants to go short. Here's what I'm thinking though. I feel like you're going to get your heartfelt dose from the lighter books we're recommending. Okay. So I'm really leaning into the kind of wry tone that we see in Severance and Sex and Vanity, even though they're very different books. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking one by Mohsen Hamid. It's called How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia. Is this one you've read? No, I have not even heard of it. Oh, this is fun. And it has a really fun construct. His book that came out in three or four years ago, 2017 maybe, called Exit West, was everywhere for a time. So if you are familiar with his work and you're not sure why, I wonder if that might be it. And he also wrote The Reluctant Fundamentalist. Oh, yeah. This is a serious literary novel, Jake. And also it's really fun because it's told with the structure of a self-help book, which is really funny because the book's opening line is, look, unless you're writing one, a self-help book is an oxymoron because it's the author doing the writing. You're not helping yourself unless you're reading, but it just starts with kind of a joke, which is funny because Hamid said that the whole premise started as a joke. He, he, kept telling his friends, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write my next book as a self-help book. And then much to his surprise, his brain started playing with the idea and he started experimenting and thought, weird, this might actually work. So what that means practically is chapter one is move to the city. And chapter two is go get an education. And chapter three (laughs) is don't fall in love. Our protagonist doesn't necessarily adhere to every step laid out in those self-help book directions. That might be good to know. 
but the story follows this guy. He's young. He's broke. I mean, he's broke like dirt poor. And he leaves his village and migrates to the big city because the rural economy where he lives, which is in an unnamed Asian country, is collapsing. And he slowly moves to the city, gets an education, all that. He slowly becomes an entrepreneur and he sells bottled water, which isn't so different to the plot line of Ling Ma's character selling Bibles. But he sells the water and not is in what is not the most above board way. There's definitely some social commentary involved here, but we follow him through his whole life. And as we do, we're hearing his story in the second person. You move to the city, you get a job, you realize your cutting boss maybe has something kind of, you know, sketchy up his sleeve. It's clever and thought provoking. And I think you said you loved the voice of Severance specifically. I think the voice of this could be really fun for you. It's definitely different. And readers should know that this is not a book with strong characterization. This isn't like, oh my gosh, that character, I'm going to love them forever. They're going to stay with me. Like we don't even know this character's name. We never find out. So if you want to get to know your characters and their inner joys and struggles, that's not so much what's happening here. But for unique and thought-provoking, yes and absolutely. How does that sound? That sounds great. I'm definitely going to check that out. We've definitely done the darker, broodier, snarkier literary. And then we've done something fun. And now I'm thinking of doing something that has that deep, well-earned emotional resonance that a novel that spans decades, like the John Boyne book, can do. And the book I'm thinking of for that is one that we have talked about on the podcast before, but not for years, I don't think. It's Cutting for Stone by Abraham Verghese. Jake, is this one you've read? I have not. Okay. I'm really interested in Abraham Verghese's career, and I wish he'd write another book, but he has another job as well. He's a, I almost said surgeon. I don't know that that's actually true. He's a physician, but he said that he realized because of the way he approaches medicine, he needs a break. And he went to the Iowa Writers Workshop many years into his medical career to focus on writing. And he's written some memoir and he's written this novel. And I really do wish he'd write another one. I think this came out more than 10 years ago. And I feel like the world's ready for another Verghese novel. What I like about the story is that it has so much... This is going to sound cheesy, Jake, but I just feel like it has so much love in it. It's just really clear how much he loves books and believes in the power of literature. And he said in interviews that fiction is his first love. That's why when he teaches med students, like he'll use the death of Ivan Ilyich to teach about end of life care and Dorothy Allison's bastard out of Carolina to help students really understand what child abuse could be like and how that should inform their medical practice. And he says that like reading a textbook, that doesn't give you the real truth of the story that you can get from reading, you know, an invented reality. Dorothy Allison wrote, I mean, have you read anything by her? No, I haven't. Oh, well, one of her quotes is that fiction is the great lie that tells the truth about how the world really lives. Coming to this story, knowing like this is what he's trying to do, like to tell great sweeping, he calls it an old fashioned story in a way that's invented, although there's certainly seeds of his actual lived experience in the book everywhere. But knowing that that's what he's trying to do, I think um, is no surprise to those who've read it just because it's a really emotional book. And something else he said that he wanted to do with this book was to show the reader how entering medicine, something that to a lot of my contemporaries is something you do because you want to help people, sure, but you also want a really nice car. Yeah. Yeah. And a big house, but that how for many people, it's almost a spiritual calling. It's like this big romantic quest and a privileged, but also really hazardous 
undertaking. This is a story that spans, like I said, decades and moves between India, Ethiopia, and actually New York City, which I didn't think about when we started talking. But it's the story of identical twin brothers who are born of this secret relationship between an Indian nun and the British surgeon she assisted. When she becomes pregnant and has the baby, she tells no one who the father is and everyone is very surprised because they can't imagine that this good nun becoming pregnant, let alone giving birth to twins. So this is the story of these identical twin brothers who inconveniently fall in love with the same woman. And one of them ends up needing to flee the country because of the political situation there. But it's coming of age story. There's a mystery to it. Definitely a sweeping family story. It's really a genre defying book. It's not easily categorized, but legions of readers, um, say like, oh, this is the kind of book you just want to hug to your heart and weep when it's over. And, you know, remember is one of your favorite books for all time. It's a well-crafted story, but I also suspect that the places Verghese is taking to you emotionally is a place that you would want to go. And it's like, almost 600 pages. I feel like I should work that in there, but I hope you'll find it a 600 page read worth your while. How does that sound? I feel like I keep saying everything sounds amazing, but yeah, I, <laughs> I, I definitely want to read that. It sounds like something I could really, you know, get lost in. I hope so. Okay. That was Cutting for Stone by Abraham Verghese. Jake, of the books we talked about today, One Last Stop by Casey McQuiston, which doesn't come out till June 1st. So this is a little bit unfair question. <laughs> How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia by Mosin Hamid, and Cutting for Stone by Abraham Verghese. Which would you, let's say, which would you like to read next? I, I'm definitely going to pick up Cutting for Stone, and I think that's what I would like to read next. I'm definitely going to pick up How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia. That sounds really fun and really unique. And yeah, I'll probably pre-order the, the Casey McQuiston book, because I did love Red, White, and Royal Blue, and that sounds like something uh, I'd definitely be interested in. Well, I can't wait to hear what you think about all three of them. Yeah, I kind of gave the pageant answer, but I guess <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably pick up Cutting for Stone of all three of those. Jake, thanks so much for talking books with me. Yeah, it was a pleasure. It was really great. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Jake, and I'd love to hear what you think he should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 277, and it's where you will find the full list of titles we talked about today. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We'll see you next week. To support our show and get weekly bonus episodes, access to fun live streams, and a peek behind the scenes, join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash whatshouldireadnext. If you wish to do so, this is a great way to tangibly support our show. Sign up to become a supporter at patreon.com slash what should I read next. Follow us on Instagram at what should I read next. If you don't get our weekly newsletter, go to what should I read next podcast.com slash newsletter to sign up for our free weekly delivery. And don't forget to check out our new YouTube channel. Search what should I read next and you'll find our channel there. If you enjoy this podcast and want to support it, please share it with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or purchase one of my books, including I'd Rather Be Reading, for yourself or a friend. Thanks to the people who make the show happen, What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Roca said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>